Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. My guest this week is Thomas Noble. He's available with a translation of several Carolingian chroniclers called in the book called Charlemagne and Louis the Pious, which I'm holding up here. And Louis the Pious is, of course, going to be our main focus on this episode. But before we begin, I want to begin to talk about how this book came about and how the sources that you used and the chroniclers in for this book and that their point of view on Carolingian history and the Carolingian writers in the book. Well, I taught um, both for undergraduates and for research students, graduate students, um, Carolingian history for 40 years. And um, certain texts were, 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 were very important. And uh, uh, a number of these just really were, were not available. Now, there were lots of translations of Einhard's uh, Vita Caroli, so that was not really an issue. Uh, although everyone used the old Penguin translation, which I think was not very good. Um, and uh, where where and and then there was an old translation of of Notker that again I don't think was was really very good and there's there's also one of Notker that's online that's very old and very antiquated uh, in its language but you know for some period of time I used those because that's what was available my students uh, my graduate students could mostly read Latin but my undergraduates couldn't read Latin. And uh, when when one moved into the ninth century, um, there was a translation uh, prepared by a woman Donna Boutel um, that uh, uh, was then published in an anthology of Carolingian texts. Um, um, but I don't think it was actually a very good translation, and and it wasn't necessarily widely available. And, you know, you had to buy that whole book just to get that text. There was a translation of the so-called astronomer done by Alan Cabanis. But uh, the astronomer's Latin is actually pretty difficult. And in lots of places, Cabanis simply paraphrased. He didn't really translate. So over a period of a good many years, I, I sort of built up translations of my own that I used in my classes. And uh, that gave me the opportunity to to ask students to to reflect on them, to comment on them, to um, tell me what uh, they liked, what they didn't like, um, and uh, and little by little, I sort of built up the references that that attached to the text in the book. And and I would ask the students, well, what would be helpful here, or do you know who this is? Do you know what that means? And and when students were not clear about these things, then boom, I made a note <laughs> to explain uh, who a person was or. Uh, what uh, a technical term uh, might mean. And so, you know, little, little by little, I, uh, I, I sort of built up this, this uh, collection of materials and, and then, 
and, and then I send it off to be published. So <laughs> it's mm. uh, uh, there, there's nothing really terribly mysterious about it, but I, I would say it was a project that was probably a good, mm, I don't know, 10 years or more in the making. <laughs> so, mm. uh, Not being relieved to finally publish the final result then after seven years. Well, yeah, it was, it was very good to see it. And uh, I, I, I think the book has been uh, pretty well received. Mm. Um, you know, it, uh, it it sells at a kind of a steady rate every year. Uh, it certainly doesn't make me rich, but <laughs> but it sells uh, a, a few copies. And uh, it didn't it didn't get very many reviews, but um, translations almost never get reviews. Um, what there what there were were were, were positive. Um, and uh, so I was, you know, I was pleased with that. Mm. Um, but essentially, I, I prepared the book, uh, you know, to be useful, um, to, to pull these five texts together in one place, um, to mm. have them translated by one person, and uh, to to have them available, you know, at a reasonable price. The book was issued in both hardback and paperback, and the paperback uh, version is, is not uh, terribly expensive. I mean, as you know, publishers nowadays tend to charge outrageous prices for books, but um, the paperback version of this mm -hmm. book is, is, is not too bad. And, you know, I, I know that uh, a good many teachers out there use it. So, um, so that means it's meeting the intention I had for it just to be, to be useful and have these texts uh, uh, get into students' hands. You mentioned Einhard, of course, and he's one of the most famous Charlemagne's biographers. And um, you mentioned astronomer as well, who was personally one of my favorite biographers on Louis the Pious when I read the book. And um, but the, so let's talk about, as, as I said, on focus as Louis the Pious in the episode. And I did one episode on Charlemagne a year ago with the brilliant Stuart Ellyle, whose also book also is fantastic read about Carolingian history, but. Let's talk about some of the sources for Louis the Pious. One of them is, of course, the astronomer as well. So how reliable are these sources that you use in this, for this book? Well, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a wonderful question. And, and, and actually, uh, it's, it's several questions all wrapped up together. Reliable can mean, on the one hand, how accurate is it? Just in mm. terms of its factual details, how accurate? Reliable can mean how faithful is it to the point of view of this anonymous author, the astronomer. Um, no, no text is ever antiseptic. I mean, uh, it, it mm. is ever pure. Um, authors write for reasons. They have they have. And even today. Well, sure, of course. So, um, uh, I mean, I think that that I mean, we're very grateful to have the astronomer's text because. Uh, I mean, as, as, you, as you know, you've read them. Hermolda uh, mm. stops in the year 826, and, and Thegan only a little bit later than that. So uh, Louis lived until 840. So the astronomer gives us the, the, the entire course of Louis's life. And beyond that, um, he provides a lot of detailed information uh, about the years when Louis was king of Aquitaine before he became emperor in 814. Um, and, and we're very grateful to have that. Um, now, some of that kind of material can be corroborated, for example, with different annals, uh, the Royal Frankish annals and the so-called revised annals. And then there are a number of annals that were produced in the south of France 
that are more or less complete or cover particular stretches of years, but we can we can use uh, some of those texts to uh, to sort of flesh out the account or to verify uh, certain details, certain dates. Um, but but on the whole, I think that uh, I think that the astronomer's text is pretty accurate. Um, now you, you could you could say um, uh, it, it, pretty accurate as to to details. Um, but then you could say, well, does he have a point of view? And and I think he does. He doesn't like Lothar very much, mm. uh, for example. Um, and what's what's interesting there is that um, uh, you know we 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 have a number of, uh, of chronicles and annals and so forth that are written uh, uh, in the ninth century, and and Lothar actually never got a defender. <laughs> Nobody mm. ever took his point of view. Um, which, which I Poor think is, Lothar. I'm sorry, for Lothar. Yeah. So, so in, in a way you could say, well, if, if these authors are, um, sort of very negative about Lothar, um, is that inaccurate or is that simply, um, arguing a particular point of view that sees him as, as, um, kind of a dangerous figure, a disloyal figure, um, you know, you, uh, you can you can understand that in 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 a number of different ways. Um, I mean, Nithard, for example, who um, produces a chronicle that um, covers most of the reign of Louis the Pious and then goes into the reign of Charles the Bald, goes really down to um, the great battles in the early eight forties. Uh, uh, Nithard doesn't like Lothar either, <laughs> and uh, uh, so it's uh, anyway. I mean, it those might are the be onto of, something. Then, what's that? Wasn't a very, they might be onto something. He wasn't a very likable figure, it seems like. Well, um, I, I think that's probably true. Although there have been some scholars in recent times, um, a Cambridge uh, PhD student, El Elena Screen, who was a student of Rosamund McKitterick, um, has, has written quite a bit about Lothar and has kind of tried to rehabilitate him. Mm. And he was. You know, if if you if you look for a moment at the situation through Lothar's eyes, um, when 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 Charles Martel died in 741, he had two sons. Shortly after this, Carloman, one of those sons, entered a monastery. So Pippin, Pippin the Third, was left alone. When he died in 768, he leaves Charlemagne and Charlemagne's brother. Three years later, Charlemagne's brother dies. So basically, you would had unitary succession in the Carolingian world. Now, in many ways, that was kind of an accident, but that's what happened. So then Charlemagne comes along, and he has uh, he has lots of children, but he has he has three legitimate sons, uh, uh, and two of them died before Louis did. So there's again a unitary succession in eight fourteen. Louis succeeds by himself. Now Louis has sons, Pippin, Lothar, and Louis, and then his first wife dies. He marries Judith of Bavaria. She has a son, Charles. So all of Louis's sons from the first wife have some level of concern because uh, Louis is going to try to carve out some territory for Charles, for his son, whom, whom we'll eventually know as Charles the Ball. Meanwhile, Lothar is uh, 
by the Ordinatio Imperii in 817, um, and, and I'll just parenthetically mention that we, we have a lot of capitulary evidence for the reign of Louis the Pious. We have a lot for Charlemagne's reign too. Mm. Capitularies are something like executive orders. They're something like writs. They're something like legislation. Um, you know, scholars tie themselves up in knots trying to decide exactly what these documents are. But the point is there's quite a bit of this material and, and it also helps us. As, for example, do the records of church councils. There were a great many church councils in the reign of Louis the Pious, and we have the records of those councils. So these help us to flesh out the picture given to us by the biographies. Well, anyway, back to Lothar. Uh, the Ordinatio Imperii basically said that Lothar was to succeed as emperor, and his younger brothers, at that point, it was Pippin and Louis, were to basically submit to him. They would be given territory, but basically they were to um, submit to their brother. Well, they didn't much like that, <laughs> quite frankly. And and then the situation is complicated when in the late 820s, Louis, Louis the Pious attempts to carve out some territory for his son Charles. That complicates things further. So in a sense, Lothar felt aggrieved. He felt he, 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 his succession to the imperial office was less valuable, less meaningful than it might have been. In other words, if, if one tries to look at it through his eyes. Um, now, does this justify that he rises up twice against his father? And in 833, it's Amadar de Soissons, uh, that he attempts actually to depose his father, to remove him from office uh, and pack him off to a monastery. Um, uh, that's that's more difficult to say. Now, there were writers at the time. So again, we we have a lot of treatises. We have a lot of letter collections. Uh, information is going back and forth among all kinds of different Carolingian writers. There were some who felt that 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 Louis the Pious had indeed violated the Ordinatio Imperii, that 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 what he had done was wrong, that he should never have given land to Charles, that he didn't support Lothar sufficiently. There were others who felt that Lothar was simply disloyal, that he was angry about things he had no reason to be angry about. So uh, contemporaries had had very divided opinions on on exactly what was what was going on. Um, so after 834, Lothar is sent off to Italy, and uh, and actually he and his people in Italy um, they, they actually do a lot of damage down there. They they raid churches and and, and monasteries, and and he he sort of can't control uh, all of his guys. Well, part of what is going on there is that uh, the Carolingian world was a great pot of resources. Now, most of those resources involved land, but a great deal of that land was in the hand of churches. So if you had, for example, if, if say, Louis the German, one of Louis' sons, if Pippin of Aquitaine, one of Louis' sons, or Lothar, for that matter, is given a territory that has a lot of bishoprics and a lot of monasteries in it, that's a lot of wealth. And they can draw upon that wealth. Now, if Louis keeps carving up the realm, then people are going to lose out. They're going to lose wealth. That's part of what happens at the time of the Treaty of Verdun in, in 843. They have to, they, they send these kind of investigators all around the realm to size up the value of everything and then try to divide it mm. as equally as they can. So, so Lothar had some grievance that he was being deprived of, of wealth. Then when after 834, after the second of the rebellions against his father, he sent off to Italy and told to stay there. Um, 
he and his people behave rather badly, but what they're trying to do is capture resources in Italy that they have now been denied in, in the northern part of, of the Frankish world. So uh, to make a long story short, um, you know, I, I don't find myself, Lothar, a particularly attractive character, but I think I can understand, in a way, his grievances. Now, I want to begin, of course, with, with Louis' upbringing. Was it asserted from the start that Louis would be the sole heir for the Empire of Charlemagne? Or was there a lot of expectations coming from the great Char Charlemagne that Louis had to live up to. As we know, with some rulers that have been nicknamed the Great, there are, of course, a lot of expectations from their sons. And, of course, in some cases, as with Peter the Great, there has been a lot of disappointment with his heirs. And, you know, was there was there ever such expectations for Louis that many... And let's talk about his upbringing. And I want to mention as well, just two mentions, I do believe, Tegan and the astronomer mentioned the siege on Barcelona as well, which I want to talk about. And was let's so let's talk about the upbringing of Louis and of course well, we get to Barcelona as well. It's 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 a wonderful question. Um, so Louis is born in seven seventy eight. In seven eighty one, he is in Rome with his father, and uh, he uh, he and his brothers are, are are baptized. And Louis is made king of Aquitaine. His brother Pippin is made king of Italy. So Charlemagne clearly was was attempting to create, in, in a way we might say a kind of a job, but really a sort of a status position. But let's remember when Louis is sent to Aquitaine as king, he's three years old. So Charlemagne sends a number of his old trusted courtiers down there to kind of train Louis on the one hand and to kind of keep an eye on him on the other hand. So he grows up down there in Aquitaine. Now, Aquitaine, and you, you mentioned the siege of Barcelona, but of course, Aquitaine is, is highly contested territory. Um, raiders from Spain had crossed into Gaul in, in, in the 730s, and, and there had been cross-border raids going on for, for a very mm. long time. And, and of course, Charlemagne had had his campaign in 770. And of course, if I may interrupt you, the famous Battle of Tours as well, as we, we have that with Charles Martel, as you mentioned earlier. So we have several things going on there. Well, no, no, that's right. So, so uh, uh, you know, Charlemagne goes into Spain in 778. Um, uh, again, in an attempt, I think, to sort of seal that border, just to, to stop the raiding coming over the border. And, you know, that's the event that is recounted in the Royal Annals, but it's recorded also in, in Einhard, where um, sort of Basque, kind of terrorists up in the Pyrenees attack Charlemagne's baggage train. So there, so there had been trouble in that part of the world for a long time. So from one point of view, Louis actually got a lot of practical experience. Um, his, his brother Pippin, for example, um, had some military experience up in the Northeast along the Avar frontier. So really up along the Danube frontier. So to the Northeast of Italy but, but on the whole, Louis had a lot of, of practical experience in the South. And we, we know that he had four main palaces and that he rotated among these palaces where he held court and, and, uh, um, and uh, conducted trials and, and consulted with, with his aristocrats. But it's important to remember that at Charlemagne's court, it appears that Pippin was always kind of regarded as the heir apparent. 
Now, one might ask, what about Charles, the oldest of the three sons? Well, you know, my old friend Johannes Fried thinks Charles was gay and, and that he wasn't liked because of that, and that he, he wasn't going to have any children and, and that he'd been kind of shuffled off to one side. It is very interesting that right through the reign of Charles, of Charlemagne, we can almost never find his son Charles doing anything. Um, so for, for whatever reason. So as I say, the, generally, uh, scholars have assumed that, that, that Pippin was the heir apparent. And then in 810 and 811, Charles and Pippin died. Boom. Now it's Louis. And the evidence, again, and some of this is in the biographies, but some of it is also in annals and, and other sources, there was apparently some controversy over whether to invite Louis to court to make him emperor or not. And in the end, of course, it was decided to, to bring him to court, and, uh, uh, and, and, and he was uh, uh, named emperor by his father. And, of course, then the whole ceremony by which he's made emperor he comes into church there's a crown sitting on the altar Charlemagne makes this long speech and then he tells Louis to pick up the crown and put it on his own head in other words there's no clergy here there's no pope here <laughs> this is not mm. like Charles's uh, coronation in Rome in Christmas of 800 um so um you know it's it's it, I mean it's an interesting question uh, what exactly what what experience Louis had what training he had um, I mean, he did lots of the kinds of things that one would sort of expect a Carolingian king to do. But as I said, I don't think, um, and, I, and I think this is a pretty much a majority opinion, um, that he was regarded as the heir apparent. His brother Pippin was, with with the question of of, of his brother Charles just kind of left on the margin. I mean, we it's it's really impossible to know what what. Charlemagne thought about his son Charles. Um, although, I mean, he did in the Divisio Imperii of, of 806, he did he did carve out a sub-kingdom for Charles. Um, but you know, whether that would have meant that he would have somehow eventually been named emperor, well, it's that's anybody's guess. Um, no, no document says so. So um Louis was probably as or more experienced. Than anyone Both else military in and in court, in court he was as as well, well That's experienced. Right. And you remember, I mean, he so he's he goes to Aquitaine in seven eighty one, and he becomes emperor in eight fourteen. Mm. So that's thirty three years, <laughs> during mm. which you know he is fighting campaigns and holding courts and so forth. So um, we, I mean, you you you've read the biographies. We 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 don't have a great deal of fine-grained detail about exactly what Louis was doing all this time, but he, he's got 33 years of experience, which is pretty impressive. Mm. But was it common at that time to wait that long before you took over a rule in the kingdom that you had 30, 30 years experience? Or how early did... What's, what was the average lifespan? Of, and I mean, I'm not talking about average peasant, but for kings and nobles who lived a little better what was the average lifespan was this normal rate in the in the medieval era well <laughs> uh you know i mean you know, be perfectly honest i don't know we, we we know the birth and death dates of most medieval kings so it wouldn't be too difficult to to just make mm. a chart make a table and and put down when they were born when they died and when they uh, succeeded to rule 
Um, uh, Louis, you know, Charlemagne is probably born in 748. So he's about 20 when his father dies. Charles the Bald is born about 827. He's about 13 when his father dies. Um, uh, uh, Louis the Pious's sons uh, were all born around, apart from Charles, uh, were born around 800. So when Charles died, they were sort of teenagers or a little less. When Louis died, they were, well, by then Pippin of Aquitaine had died. Lothar was still alive and Louis the German was still alive. And they were men in their 40s. So, you know, I mean, as I said, it, it, I, I've never sat down and, and, and computed um, birth dates, death dates, and, and date of, of succeeding to rule. I'm pretty confident, though, that, that Louis' 33 years is a pretty long period. I, I doubt in most cases it was that long. But it's important to say that there was no rule about this yeah. because basically the, 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 the reigning guy had to die. <laughs> and mm. then the next one comes along. So th there wasn't any rule that 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 said five years, ten years, uh, twenty years, twenty five years, you know, something like that. So um, everything depended, in a way, on chance. Let's talk about the death of Charlemagne because I, I believe he, if I sorry if I mix up, but Nocturne do speak about some bad omens happening, and I do think he's one of the least reliable, as you mentioned in the book. Of the sources on Charlemagne. So let's, but he not sure mentions some signs of bad omen at Comet, I believe, among other things are surrounding Charlemagne's death that were kind of foretold that he was something bad was going to happen to him, and that's of course he would then have been dead. There were, uh, I mean, there, there are things, of course, in the biographies of Louis the Pious, but there are a bunch of other sources too that have, you know, visions and dreams and so on that, that people are having. Uh, some of this is happening at the, at the Monastery of St. Gaul, for example. Th things are happening in various places that, uh, you, you know, somebody sees Charlemagne in hell with devils gnawing on his genitals because he was promiscuous and, and uh, um, uh, others, you know, he, he's having gold poured into his mouth because he was so greedy. Um, now, um, again, there's there's a number of ways. I've actually, I, I published an article some years ago on on, on all of that stuff. Um, um, th there's a number of ways to read it. Um, were people trying to criticize Charlemagne, or were people trying to improve the reputation of Louis the Pious? Say, so, well, you know, he's not really so bad. His father did all these bad things. Uh, you know, um, you know. <laughs> None of the authors of any of these accounts of uh, Charlemagne's sort of uh, after-death experiences bothered to say, I'm going to write this down and here's why. Mm. <laughs> so so um, we're, we're pretty much free to, to try to imagine why they said what they said. And as I said, I mean, they could be uh, criticizing Charlemagne. They could be trying to support uh, Louis the Pious. Or both. Um. So let I want to talk a little bit about the, the nickname to Louis as well, the Pious. How did it come to get the nickname Louis I the don't Pious? Really have that nickname before the High Middle Ages. I think really until like the twelfth century. Uh, and it's interesting in 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 older French scholarship. If you look for 
say, 19th century books on Louis, he's Louis Le Debonair, <laughs> which is kind of mm -hmm. curious. Um, um, he, uh, I mean, in the scholarship, he's always Louis the Pious, Louis de Guframa, uh, Louis Le Pius, um, but th that name doesn't really attach to him until some of the literary cycles of the 12th century. And in a sense, people are looking back at him because he was so supportive of the church. Um, you know, there is that passage that says that, you know, um, at one point he contemplated becoming a monk. I don't, I, I don't know if I believe that that's true, but, but so, so people could look back at some of these um, Carolingian writings and, and, and think of Louis as very pious. Mm. Now, I mean, was he really, or, or was he, uh, on the whole, a pretty practical person? Um, um, and, and, and somebody who, you know, overall tried to do the right thing. Um, now he sometimes sort of put his foot wrong, but you know, I, I don't, um, I don't think it gets us very far to say, well, Louis was just really pious. <laughs> I don't... So he didn't have that nickname during his lifetime. It was given after his yeah. death. Yes, I don't. I can't think of. Well, I mean, you you saw those biographies. None of them calls him mm. Louis the Pious. I I can't think of. Right now, I can't think of a Carolingian text that calls him Louis the Pious. Um, Ludovicus Pius. Um, that. I'm pretty confident comes in the 12th century and it comes in literature. And it takes off, as you know, it's what is known as today. And of course, Louis the first, among other names. So, but I want to talk about as well, I want to compare Charlemagne's court versus Louis the Pious court, because as you know, in Charlemagne's court, you had envoys and you had people from from Baghdad coming into the court and you have people from Ireland as far as and England and there are several ethnicities in in the in the court of Charlemagne. Was this similar and in Louis the Pious court or was this totally different animal? Uh, it is rather different. Um, many of the people you were just mentioning who show up at Charlemagne's court are scholars that mm. he attracted to court because he thought they had something particular to contribute to his educational reforms, to his ecclesiastical reforms. Um, by, by, by Lewis's time, a great many of those reforms were, were, were pretty well launched. But Louis, and, and this is part of what got him in trouble with some people, Louis brought a considerable number of people with him to court from Aquitaine. And a considerable number of people from the north sort of probably had their nose out of joint because they thought that preferments that should have gone to them were going to these other people. So when we go back to Charlemagne's court, it's important to say that when we can identify chief secular officials working in this court, they are not, they're, they're Franks. They are not these Irishmen and Anglo-Saxons and, and Italians and, 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 and everybody else. Um, yes, he's bringing those people to his court, but even there, and 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 I I don't have it with me now, but um, I had a table that I used to uh, put up on the screen when I showed when I taught this for my students, um, and it, it it had a whole bunch of the names of these um, outside scholars who came to court, and then the years we knew they were at the court, there were there were never very many of them there at the same time, they didn't overlap very much, 
So it isn't as if Charlemagne's court was just absolutely bustling with all these foreign scholars. There were lots of them who were there at different times, um, and, and that's important. But it's also important that they were not, for the most part, getting you know, major jobs, uh, as it were, in the Carolingian administration. So uh, when, 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 when Louis comes along, he's bringing people with him from Aquitaine, uh, not least, for example, the infamous Bernard of Septimania, who, who causes all kinds of trouble. Um, but, uh, uh, um, you know, um, Benedict of Anyan, for example, who kind of leads the ecclesiastical reforms of 816, 817. He's Aquitanian. Um, actually, he comes from Magalong. He's, he comes from Gothia. Uh, he comes from south of Aquitaine. But but he's another southerner who, who comes north. Elizacher, who's Louis Chancellor, is, is a southerner, an Aquitaine guy. Um, so he, he brings a lot of these people north with him. So, so that is um, rather different. But then going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, he has spent years with these people. He knows them. For the most part, he trusts them. You know, he doesn't know the people at his father's court. Louis was almost never at his father's court which is, you know, sort of interesting and in some ways kind of puzzling. Why was he basically never there? I mean, when Charlemagne goes down, for example, to Italy uh, on, on a momentous journey in the autumn of the year 800, he doesn't take Louis with him. Now, he had to go right through Aquitaine to go on down to Italy, but he didn't take Louis to Italy with him. Why not? Well, I mean, I I don't know. But, you know, it's it's interesting that that... Louis would not have been well known to the people at the heart of Charlemagne's administration. Mm. And then when Louis comes north with all his Aquitanian friends, those people were not known to the people who had been leaders in the previous regime. Mm. Now, then, of course, so mm -hmm. next I want to bring you up, and we spoke about the siege of Barcelona against a, per a person named Saldo, and I want to speak a little bit about Louis' campaigns for for a while as well. So I want, I want to begin, of course, because of, but during his rule in Aquitaine, he, of course, fights against Barcelona, as he mentioned in both, both two sources, an astronomer and the Fordimian a little bit poor with remembering, but let's try Yeah. So it mentioned two the two sources that mentioned the siege of Barcelona. And so let's talk begin with talk about this campaign for a little while and begin with the siege of Barcelona as well. Because they seem rather that there is some interesting it's interesting to read about this, especially in the primary sources sources when you read about the siege. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's there's not too much to say beyond what 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 the sources tell us. Louis leads a pretty massive campaign. Um, uh, you know, his father had gone down to Zaragoza, uh, and then basically came back north. Um, and and Louis, I think, has basically recognized that uh, that, that that Barcelona is the key to controlling this this whole territory in the south one of the interesting things about that territory in the south that's that's worth always keeping in mind is that we tend to think of the pyrenees as forming this boundary between the frankish world and the spanish world or the visigothic world before that or the muslim world and actually there is a territory from the ebro river 
to the Ro to uh, excuse me to the Loire River. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry, to the Garonne from the Ebro to the Garonne, which is a pretty coherent territory. You know, the the Occitan language, for example, is very much like Catalan. You know, if if you travel in that part of the world today, the the food is very much the same. I mean, this is this is an area that that has a kind of a of an internal coherence, and it, it's in that area that that the the Franks had been subject to to sort of constant trouble. So, what I think Louis recognizes, and I think it was a, a prudent and 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 well thought through decision, is that Barcelona was the key. To, to gaining control of that much larger territory. So he goes on to Barcelona. And what he realizes is that Barcelona, you know, one of the interesting things, the way the um, biographers uh, talk about it, I mean, Barcelona was a very well-fortified city. And and um, so Louis has to realize that, that a siege of this city is going to be a very considerable undertaking. And he he basically plans to stay as long as he needs to stay to get the job done, and 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 so he does. Now we have all those wonderful little set pieces, um, you know the, the the battles where one of the Muslims and one of the Franks kind of yell at each other back and forth and mm. so forth. Um, but there is one conversation that I found interesting in particular that I don't even know which one wrote this, but he says supposedly that to the Saldo, one of the main main generals i think in the city that is you know we will you see this horse we will kill this horse we will never give up we will never never withdraw we will kill the, our horses and eat them before we surrender and give up the siege of your city or so, something in line of that and that gives tells you something about the carolingian spirit as well of course we don't know if that happened but you know if it really mm -hmm. said so but it's it tells you something like you said about the spirit of the carolingian warriors Sure. No, I, I think that's just right. But it, it, but it's also true that you know these authors uh, were were pretty well read, mm. and now they had they had no Greek, so they had never read the Iliad and the Odyssey, but they'd read Virgil, and they'd read other Roman sources, and you know one of the interesting things um, about dying in antiquity is that you know if you're on the battlefield, you die for a hundred lines. It's never like just boom, you die, boom, you fall down, you're dead, and the story moves on. So, you know, somebody gives a long speech, and then they die. Or they give a long speech, and then they kill somebody. And and so these set pieces, you know, I, th there's absolutely no reason to take any of them literally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one can go yeah, back you know, and forth. I, I, have to, I had to mention that, the, you know, the long set piece before it kills someone kind of sounds like a supervillain today would say, before he reveals his master plan and before he's taken down that, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And then they, well, they fail, either fails or do something surprising and they do exactly what he's supposed to say. So it kind of reminds me a little bit about, you know, what a villain in a, in a superhero movie or in a James Bond movie does. Like... Sure. And, and you know, now, obviously, none of these people uh, had ever read Thucydides. Hmm. But the the central point of Thucydides' uh, history was that he reported speeches as what people would have said in the circumstances. And that becomes a literary trope right through antiquity and into the early Middle Ages. You can make up speeches that you believe convey what somebody in that moment, in that place, would have said. Hmm. And, and we can see 
the 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 authors Hermoldus is particularly good at that um but but we can see it uh to some extent in the astronomer also um um you know sort so basically making up these speeches um now i think that that um what the authors are trying to convey they're they're trying to convey a very positive image of louis they're they they are trying to praise uh frankish spirit frankish courage um <clears throat> their their willingness to undertake this uh, this 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 great siege and you know there are lots of you know interesting little details um you know the 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 muslim scouts who who find dung floating down the river and say uh oh we're in trouble <laughs> because mm. they realize that uh, um uh that that some pretty important uh, animals have been passing across that river you know i mean little details like that uh help to enliven the story they don't they don't really move it along very far i mean that 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 didn't end the siege or something but um it is interesting that the authors would would choose to include sort of little details like that um but anyway it's uh, um um the, the 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 siege of barcelona is uh, is, is really quite a quite, quite an impressive set piece um in 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 the stories now that is obviously one of the most famous campaigns, I think, of Louis de Pius' reign and life. But well, the other campaign, of course, it wasn't the only one. So let's talk about some of the other campaigns that he embarked on as well. But I think that, to my remembrance, it's the only one mentioned in the primary source. But were there others, other sieges and campaigns as well that he embarks on? Well, there, there, I mean, there's a couple of uh, sort of answers to that question. Uh, I'll come to the most important one in just a second. Um Louis, um, so we have, in a way, we have to back up uh, to the time of Charles Martel and even indeed to the time of Charlemagne. And do do we regard them, and say in particular, do we regard Charlemagne as a great conqueror, or was he basically trying to recover the territories that had once been claimed by their Merovingian predecessors? So in central Germany, in southern Germany, for example, that, that appears to be the case. It's not so much that Charlemagne went into new territory. When Charlemagne and Louis go down to Italy and go down to Rome, they, they do everything in their power you sort of not to conquer Rome. <laughs> they, they, they keep their, their hands off. Charlemagne's campaigns in Saxony, uh, the sources make it pretty clear that this was something Charlemagne felt was forced upon him, that, that the Saxons kept raiding and that he's got to stop this. And you can you can watch how he moves forward over decade by decade. He moves up to one river. There's still raids. He moves up to another river. There's some raids. He moves finally all the way up to the Eiderschlei line in in southern Denmark. But that he 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 doesn't sort of start right off and conquer Saxony. It it happens slowly. So what Louis did is is uh, agents of his. L Louis did not. You know, Charlemagne participated in 53 campaigns in the 46 years of his reign. Louis participated in very few campaigns as emperor. Now, he has the great campaign in the south when he's king of Aquitaine, but as emperor, he has very few campaigns. But he does have people fighting on his behalf in the east, basically trying to preserve, in a sense, the frontier over there. Okay, so that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is Brittany. So, uh, yeah, the yeah, Britons, the Carolingian writers aren't very fond of the Britons, are they? Yeah, the, the 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 well, of course. I mean, the Bretons had been driving the Merovingian kings crazy, and mm. and they were driving the Carolingian kings crazy. They were 
supposed to be loyal. They were supposed to have submitted. They wouldn't submit. They wouldn't, um, you know, they wouldn't uh, sort of pay their taxes. Um, they 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 gave the Frankish Church all kinds of trouble about appointing bishops uh, and 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 things like that. And so Louis basically wants to subject Brittany to to sort of put an end to this. Now I the, think the, the, if, if I'm sorry for interrupting you, but there did no. seem to be a decent under Charlemagne with the, the King of Offa in, in England, there did seem to be some kind of uh, relationship there because there seemed to be that the Carolingian, as we mentioned, they don't like the Bretons, but then it with the marriage there was we're talking about marriage proposal. I don't know if with I don't remember if it was Offa's daughter with oh, Charlemagne oh. done. So but, Bretons yeah. Are the people who live in the Armorican Peninsula oh, in France? Right. Britons right. live in England. Oh, right. No, no, oh, I'm not two, thinking. Yeah, no, that's my two, mistake. Yeah. Two, two completely no, no, different. I, I, for some, for some reason, that sounded like it was Britons and Bretons. So Bretons and Britons. Yeah. <laughs> some similar. So it was my mistake. I'm sorry for screening that up right there. No, that's, yeah. that, that's all right. But, uh, so, it was my mistake. So, so Louis wants to subject Brittany. And yeah. my own view of that is that is that his attitude with respect to Brittany is very much like his attitude with respect to Catalonia or to Barcelona. We've got a problem here. Let's go in there and solve this problem. Let's let's put an end to all this trouble out here. Now, in some ways, I think this was also his father's policy in Italy in 773-4. When Charlemagne goes in, defeats Desiderius, sends him off to a monastery, and puts an end to the Lombard monarchy. I think that Charlemagne had said, look, these people gave my father fits for 20 years. They've been giving me trouble. I'm simply not going to put up with this anymore. I'm going in and put an end to the problem. So Louis, I think, with the Barcelona campaign, is effectively saying, I'm going in there and put an end to this problem. With the Breton campaign, he thinks, I'm going to go in there and put an end to this problem. However, what he didn't reckon on is the Bretons wouldn't play fair. They were basically guerrilla warriors. The Frankish army would go in. They couldn't. They would never fight a pitched battle. They, they got attacked all over the place. And the Franks also discovered that Brittany was very poor. So when you went in there, your opportunities for plunder were, were small. So <clears throat> in the 820s, um, Part of what really began to turn a significant segment of the Frankish aristocracy against Louis were those Breton campaigns. Because they thought, you know, these, these campaigns are dangerous and they're not lucrative. We, we, don't, we don't get anything out of this deal. Um, and and that, that really, um, I think, began to damage, you know, that, that problem is, is, is contemporaneous with the birth of Charles the Bald, uh, the 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 attempt to create new territory for him. So all of these problems kind of culminate in the middle and late years of the seven of the eight twenties. Um, but but the Breton campaign was um, was really a catastrophe for Louis. Another problem that seemed to occur under Louis the Pious is, of course, the emergence of the Vikings. So how? How did it deal with these problems? And uh, there is mention of a Harald in Danish king or Harald, Harald, and I might be wrong again here, but is this Harald Bluetooth, his referent, or is it a different No, Harald? Bluetooth is a lot later. 
Yeah. Now, this is Harold Clark. Mm. K-L-A-K, Harold Clark. Um, so, but this is another interesting uh, reflection on Charlemagne. In the last years of Charlemagne's reign, beginning about 810, he attempts to forge alliances in Denmark. In other words, he doesn't gather up his army and march into Denmark. He doesn't care about conquering Denmark. What he wants up there is peace. He wants peace on that northern frontier. So he tries to um, achieve peace with, uh, with the Danish kings. Louis continues that policy. And then we have that long set piece in Ermoldus where he brings Harold Clack to court and he, and he has great banquets for him and he great, has a great hunting expedition for him and, and, and he's given all these presents and so forth. And, and, and all of these Vikings come down and they're dressed in white garments and they're baptized uh, and so on. So then what happens is Harold goes back and, and there's very complicated politics inside Denmark. Harold winds up getting killed and, and other factions of Danes sort of continue the raiding across the northern part of the Frankish world. Now, the raiding intensified in the 830s, but it really picked up steam in the 840s when the Scandinavians in general, I mean, basically Norwegians and, and Danes, the, the Swedes were a little bit later, they're going east. Um, they can look at the Frankish world, realize the Frankish world is in full civil war. Louis the Pious' sons are fighting a civil war amongst each other. Everything is terribly divided. This makes it a very ripe target. Mm. And they start to attack, right. attack and attack. And, 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 it, and as you know, it takes a very, a very long time. I mean, you, one, one could say in some ways the, 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 the raids sort of ran out of gas. They, they never really stopped them. You know, they tried to fortify bridges on the River Seine, for example. That didn't work. <laughs> they tried all kinds of things, but, um, you know, it just, it didn't, um, there was really nothing they could do to stop these. In, in part because neither Denmark nor Norway was as yet anything like a unified kingdom. So there were all these different groups of, of, of Vikings uh, following various leaders and and they were all going off in different directions. Some of them were raiding down the River Seine, for example. Some were raiding down the River Loire, for example. Some were uh, raiding down uh, the Weser and the Elbe in northern Germany, for example. Um, so in, in part, you never knew where these guys were coming from. You never knew when they were going to show up. Um, you, you, you didn't know which bands you were dealing with. There, there was nobody to negotiate with. Now, I think as I said, I think Charles and Louis thought maybe they had an opportunity to negotiate with Danish kings, but it proved that those Danish kings didn't have very much authority, and 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 that simply didn't work. So the um, now the um, I mean, as you, as you probably know, there's there's all kinds of theories about you know what 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 prompted what we call Viking activity. Uh, you know, why did this happen? Um, you know, my, remember Michael Wallace Hadrill's famous remark that we have to be careful not to regard them as simply long-haired, uh, long-haired uh, foreigners who sometimes roughed up the, or long-haired tourists who sometimes roughed up the natives. I mean, these guys can be pretty violent and nasty. Yeah. So they hit monasteries, for example. Well, why not? Yeah. I mean, they're they're Use not the and they got a lot of wealthy stuff. I mean, you know, yeah. if you're if you're raiding, this is a good place. Now there have been all these different you know, arguments over the years about, uh, you know, is Muslim silver coming up across the Baltic and into the 
and, and into the North Sea, and then is that does that get cut off, uh, and 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 therefore does trade that it existed in the eighth century uh, not exist any longer, and basically uh, people in the North are trying to to sort of recover their their economic position. Um, uh, you know, in other words, was there method to the Vikings' madness? In other words, they, they, these guys were not simply violent guys who just said, let's get in a boat, go kill people. I mean, they, 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 they had objectives. Now the objectives were largely to enrich themselves, but, but that's understandable. So, um, uh, I mean, there is a, some t scholars, I think you theorize that poverty, of course, in Scandinavia was big at the time. And that's one of the reasons that they went out on this trade to, and like you said, enrich themselves, but also because of back home to get, you know, to get the poverty because the poverty was a big back home. Back home, they didn't really have any choice. Then, and, and as I mentioned, the trade may have stopped, so that might be a reason. So there, yeah, like I said, poverty could be one one big one and, of the biggest you know, reasons. And, and you probably know, you know, there has been an argument. It's, it's kind of it rises and falls, and rises and falls that there may have been overpopulation in Scandinavia, mm. and that the available land resources were not great enough for the population. Then other people will say, well, no, the archaeology doesn't really show us overpopulation. And then people come back and say, well, maybe it does. So I, I, I don't I don't have a horse in that race. So I, I, I can't mm. I, I'm not an archaeologist and I I don't follow all that literature. But I know that issue has been raised in the past, that it might have been some kind of overpopulation uh, in, in, in Scandinavia that. That sort of pushed people out, <clears throat> um, I suppose that's possible. Mm. So let's talk about the end, and we mentioned this in the beginning of the episode, the carve-up that Louis did for his son. Was, was it a bad idea from the start, carving up the empire for his so, several sons, that, so that, the, as we know, what happened after his death? And let's talk about how succession after Louis. Was there a, was there a succession plan like Charlemagne may have had, or is there was, there, was it a bit more troublesome for Louis than, than it was for Charlemagne? Oh. You know, was it uh, you know was it a good idea? Um, <coughs> it doesn't the, sound like it was uh, when it come in the, come judging from what happened after his death. It doesn't didn't sound like a good idea at the time. One of the one of the interesting things about historical study, of course, is that hindsight is always twenty twenty. Mm. Our hindsight is always perfect, um, but when we uh, imagine people living in the contingency of the moment, <laughs> you know, they they have to make decisions on the spot. Now, in Merovingian times, Frankish kings divided their realm among their sons. Charles Martel divided his realm between Pippin and Carloman. Carloman in 747 goes away to Monte Cassino and becomes a monk. Pippin divided his realm between Charles and Carloman, his two sons. In three years, his second, his, his, his second son, Charles was the older of the two, his second son dies. So the point is that dividing the realm up was Frankish custom, was Frankish practice. That's what you did. In 806, Charles issues the Divisio Imperii, which is a long and very complicated document where he divided his realm up among Charles, Pippin, and Louis. And he, you know, as I was saying a, a little while ago, exactly what he might have had in mind for his son Charles is, 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 is anybody's guess. Um, and and uh, as I suggested, I I think 
Charlemagne regarded Pippin as his heir apparent, but I can't prove that. But anyway, uh, what Charlemagne would not necessarily have anticipated is that in 810 and 811, Charles and Pippin would die. Okay, now he's got one heir. This is unusual in the Frankish world. So when Louis uh, in, in, in 817 issues his Ordinatio Imperii, he divides the realm among his first three sons, Louis, Pippin, Lothar. That was normal. Now, what happens then is that he has a fourth son. From one point of view, you could say, well, no problem. You just give him some territory. And, and, and basically uh, uh, what Louis tried to do was carve out some territory in the upper Rhone Valley, kind of in Burgundy and sort of in that particular zone. So it would have actually... So his son Louis is over in Bavaria. His son Pippin is in Aquitaine following him. And his son Lothar more or less has the north and has the imperial title. Um, so the, the territory he was giving to Charles, or I'm sorry, yes, to Charles, was not the choicest territory in the Frankish world. But the point is, it, it would have belonged to the other brothers. So, um, you know, as I say, from one point of view, what he's doing is perfectly normal, perfectly traditional. From another point of view, the first three brothers are jealous. Mm. Now, they also worry that his new wife, Judith, is uh, too influential at the court, that she has Louis' ear, she's talking him into things that, that, that others don't like. And then, and then we have these crazy stories that, that she's even she, having... So she's trying to, if I, if, I, if I may add, she's kind of Livia of the Carolingian world in I, Claudius, in a sense. She's kind of the Livia for manipulating from behind the scenes. Sure. And 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 then, you know, there are the stories that appear in the biographies that 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 Judith is having an affair with Benedict, uh, with um, Bernard of Septimania. Um, you know, I, I can't prove yay or nay on that particular point, but I think it's just the kind of salacious charge that is made to try to discredit, you know, to try to discredit Judith. So. You know, from one point of view, dividing the realm among his sons was perfectly normal Carolingian practice. Now, it's 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 worth keeping in mind that in the next generation, his son Pippin is dead. Louis the German divides the realm eventually among his three sons. Charles the Bald divides the realm among his sons. Lothar has his son Lothar II in what we now call Lorraine, Lotharingia, and and. Uh, Charles down in Provence, and then uh, 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 and eventually Louis II uh, in Italy. So Lothar divided things up among his sons, and and in, in each succeeding generation, they 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 kept dividing things up. So you know when when we say, well, was it a good idea that Louis did this? Um, he simply did what Carolingian kings do. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's 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 not much more to it than that. Now, I mean, should he not have not got married a second time? Uh, should he have not had another child? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, um, it's it's it, it's interesting, isn't it, to play what if? What if this? What if this? What if this? Mm -hmm. But, you know, he 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 does get married again and he does have another child. And <clears throat> excuse me. And so he attempts to create some sort of an endowment for that child. Charles, and that coming close on the heels of these disastrous Breton campaigns, and all of a sudden, Louis in big trouble. <laughs> mm. 
Now, what do you say that, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it seems that many consider this as the beginning of the fall of the Charlemagne's empire. Would you, would you agree that this is the case, that that would be, that this would be the at the end of Louis' life, that this would be the beginning of the end of Charlemagne's empire? Well, the, the, I mean, the, the, the strict answer to your question has to be yes. Um, but it's also uh, important to kind of keep in mind that <clears throat> the, the Frankish world was unified exactly once, under Charlemagne to be sure, but it was never unified like that under Charlemagne's father and grandfather. It was never unified like that among the Merovingian kings. And it would never be unified again after that. So it's it sort of, if we look at Charlemagne's reign, in, in a way, it is not the model or the standard against which we should judge everything. What we have to do is look at that reign as unusual. Now, that's one part of the answer. A second mm -hmm. part of the answer is if we read through theological treatises and letters and, and, and so forth, and even if we look at the Divisio Imperii from 806 and the Ordinatio Imperii from 817, a very considerable effort was being made to describe the Populus Christianus living in the Imperium Christianum. They're trying to imagine this empire as a single unity that can have many rulers. Now, um, was that possible in practice? As we know, no, it wasn't. But there were a great many good and serious thinkers who, who tried to imagine the Carolingian realm as this single unified Christian empire. And, and for them, in a way, it didn't matter who the rulers were. It, it, what, what mattered was this ideological, this ecclesiological proposition that there was a single empire. And, uh, um, you know, German scholars used to talk about the Unteilbarkeit des Reiches, the, the, the inseparability of the empire. And, and, and they didn't mean that the empire wasn't separated, because, of course, it was. It was carved up and carved up and carved up over a long period of time. But that the concept existed that the empire would not be, uh, <clears throat> you know, would, 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 would not collapse, would not fall. Um, so we have a kind of a disjunction between what actually happened and some of the best thinking <laughs> in that period. Would you say that the empire was in disarray all, all, all the way up, up until Otto the Great, who is well known for revival of the Holy Roman Empire? It wasn't known as the Holy Roman Empire at the time, of course. It is just this with Peter Wilson a few years ago, but... What what was Otto, was it in disarray until Otto the Great came to recreate the Holy Roman Empire? Well, <clears throat> the I mean again that that that's a, a very interesting question. Um, after the Treaty of Verdun, eight forty three, uh, the West Frankish and East Frankish kingdoms are united very briefly under Charles the Fat between 885 and 888. But otherwise, those realms are never again unified. They're never one single realm again. Now, for a lot of reasons, internal politics, Viking raids, competence of rulers, it took the West Frankish kingdom a lot longer to sort of get itself organized, to get effective kings, and so on. In the East, uh, 
pretty quickly the Atonian house uh, managed. Now, they they had some luck, didn't they? They came from Saxony, a very important part of, uh, uh, of Germany, and they had the silver mines. They had an enormous uh, uh, financial resource, and they were also uh, exceptionally competent military leaders. So, for example, defeating the Magyars at the Lechfeld in seven in in eight in, in nine fifty five. Um, so, so it was a combination of things: the the resources of Saxony, the resources of the silver mines, also the church. Now, think back to what I was saying a moment ago about the idea that churchmen thought of the realm as a unitary entity, almost independent of who is ruling it. German rulers, uh, German churchmen, I'm sorry, German bishops supported the Ottonians. They, they, they wanted a strong kingdom because they saw a strong kingdom as, as, as protection for themselves. Now, uh, we can then get in, into the whole business of the imperial church and did, did the three Ottos have too much control of that church or, and, 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 and so forth. That's kind of a story for another That's day. another episode. Um, but but Otto um, Otto is indeed a very very interesting person. Now when he goes into Italy in 962, and 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 he's uh, crowned emperor. <clears throat> um, what exactly was his objective? Now I think the safest answer is that if he goes into Italy and becomes emperor, he is able to tax. Italians and particularly northern Italian cities, and to generate revenue that he cannot generate in Germany. His Otto I, Otto II, Otto III, their relations with the other great German dukes, Swabia, Bavaria, Franconia, uh, are often tenuous, are often very difficult. So in a sense, what you have to do is out-resource these guys. And what do resources add up to? The ability to attract followers. The more resources you have. So um, was Otto's Italian policy a German policy? Now, if we go back, do, do the names of um, Sybil and Vicar mean anything to you? Um, they, they were two, names, but... Uh... They were two enormously important German historians in the 19th century. And <clears throat> one of them argues that the Ottonian policy in Italy was a German policy, and it made perfect sense. The other one argues is the Italian policy of the Ottonians destroyed Germany and kept it disunited until the 19th century. So, mm. you know, and the, so there were these two completely different historiographical views of, of, of what, you know, what Otto was doing. Um, um, you know, Otto is... Uh, it, it, it it's completely unlike you know Pope Stephen II traveling over the Alps in the dead of winter to go see Pippin to get help against uh, the Lombards. Um, you know what what happened in the eighth century is a completely different thing from what was happening in the tenth. So, well, if you can get if you can get somebody to come on and talk to you about Otto the first, that would be very interesting. <laughs> but it seems that Otto first is, is credited with the revival of the Holy Roman Empire. That he that he seems to. Revived the Charlemagne's empire. It's my understanding. Well, you know, you, you can say that, but but you have to keep in mind that that essentially what the Ottonian rulers ruled was basically what we would today call Germany. Hmm. All of the Frankish realms, all of the West Frankish realm, everything we would today call France, 
not to mention also the Netherlands and Belgium and and, and what have you, the Autonians never controlled any of that. Now, they did actually march armies in there once or twice uh, to kind of stick their nose in, in, in other people's business, but they never controlled all that. So they never unified Charlemagne's empire. Now, um, did they have in mind recapturing something of what Charlemagne had, had accomplished? I think the answer is yes. I think they were deeply aware of Charlemagne. You know, they visited his tomb in Aachen, and uh, there are all these interesting uh, uh, accounts of, of, of Otto going to Charlemagne's tomb in Aachen and, and, and so forth. Um, but also, just, just on, a, on, a, on, a, on a very technical point, uh, Holy Roman Empire is a technical term that became mm. the name of an institution in the 14th century. But there was the not a Holy Roman Empire was never the Holy Roman Empire. It's, people call it that all the time, but that wasn't what it was. Now, it is true that uh, uh, in the time of Frederick Barbarossa, uh, a German writer spoke of the Sacrum Imperium Romanum, Holy Roman Empire. But he was simply trying to make the point that Frederick was put in office by God, and therefore his empire was sacred, and, and all these uh, other German dukes and things, and also the church, and also the pope should leave him alone. Um, but it was never the technical name for anything. But later on, in the time of Charles V, uh, it is actually the formal name uh, of, of that institution. But, I mean, Otto does recreate an empire. He is crowned emperor. But, you know, it's uh, when when I was teaching and so forth, I always just called it the German Empire because it, it <clears throat> I mean, to call it the Roman Empire, if you think about it, it's big, a lot of questions. So hang on. The Roman Empire went from, you know, Hadrian's Wall in the north of England to Mesopotamia. I mean, <laughs> I don't have any of that. Um, so, as I said, I used to always just call it the German Empire. <clears throat> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think we've done a roundup up there. Hopefully you got a decent account of Louis the Paris. And of course, if you want to read more, I would highly recommend reading about, about Charlemagne and Louis in these primary sources that you can find written by Thomas, translated and written by Thomas Noble, as we have spoken about here. And of course, where, if they do want to read more about Louis and Charlemagne, where can people find this book? And do you have any social media or anything you want, <clears throat> want me to share it's, in the description easy. below? Find it on Amazon. Easiest place probably to find it is Amazon. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you on. The, on. My name is Alan. This has been the Dark Age 12. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you're on Spotify, rate us five stars. That would be very great. If you're on Apple Podcasts, consider writing a review of us. That would be great. If you're on YouTube, like, share and subscribes. My name is Alan and I will see you next time.